Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Color of the Forest by Ian Gordon The following account, complete with foreword and afterword, is taken from Peter Van Melsen's memoir, In Search of the Occult, first published September 2018, by Kane Publishing. An abridged version of the article, The Color of the Forest, first appeared in the British magazine Fortean Weekly, in its March 19, 2018 edition. Forward. It's a quiet February morning in Rosedale, but it's noisy in this head of mine. Last month, I was up in Scotland, the forest of Galloway, to be exact. Had quite the experience, I can tell you. And now, almost four weeks later, I'm typing away my little library, typing this forward. I'm procrastinating, if truth be told. My friends over at Fortean Weekly are expecting an article, you see. If it hadn't been for Mike—that's Mike Ferguson, editor-in-chief—I'd have never been exposed to such madness. But that's Mike. If there's a story out there, he'll have you on a train in its direction before you can strike a match. In any case, this foreword isn't for Mike's benefit. It's for mine. A means by which to expel the thoughts of a wandering mind in an effort to obtain sharp focus, coupled with black coffee and a dozen cigarettes, naturally. My time in the great forest left me a little shaken. Brushes with the unexplained continue to have that effect on me, despite my long years as a weather-worn paranormal investigator. The last four weeks have been difficult. Other than the occasional contact with my new friend at the Forestry Commission, I've kept myself to myself. You might say that I've been healing. But I still have questions. For example, who are the custodians? Where might they be found? Might an active element set me on the right path? I need help, but that'll come later. For now, it's back to the task at hand. This article won't write itself. The Color of the Forest by Peter Van Melsen, P.I. When the telephone rings at ten to midnight on a Sunday evening, I can be reasonably sure as to the identity of the caller. Subscribers to Fortean Weekly will be familiar with the magazine's editor-in-chief, but perhaps less so with his relentless enthusiasm. <laughs> Forgive me, Mike. Regardless, the calls go something like this. Van Melsen? Peter, it's Mike. Mike, what have you got for me? A lead. I'm listening. And so on and so forth. On this particular Sunday, Mike was calling to share the details of an email exchange he'd had with an unnamed Forestry Commission employee based at Galloway Forest Park in Scotland. He'd caught me during an extended rest period and was eager to take advantage of my availability. Suitably stimulated by a sizable dose of caffeine, I indulged the editor-in-chief's zeal for a good fifteen minutes or so. Simply put, the anonymous forest worker claimed to have encountered a number of unusual objects in a remote region of the park, objects whose mention was repeatedly frowned upon by the individual superiors at the commission. Mike, in his infinite wisdom, concluded that I, Peter Van Melsen, the renowned paranormal investigator, 
should meet with this unnamed caller, to be given a tour of the park, and to inspect the objects in question. Somewhat reluctantly, I agreed, and put myself to bed. I arose bright and early the following morning, and prepared to leave. By nine a.m., I was sitting opposite an old lady by the name of Beatrice, in the first-class compartment of a train from Northallerton to Edinburgh. From Edinburgh to Glasgow, I had the pleasure of Muriel Wilkinson's company, a lady who found it necessary to end every tale with the beginning of a new one. Then it was Glasgow to Ayr, a stretch in which I managed to avoid the company of other human beings. But from Ayr to Bar Hill, I was once again blessed by the presence of another, an eleven-year-old boy by the name of Duncan Abernethy, a quiet chap, who had the rather irksome habit of unashamedly gawking at me for long, uninterrupted periods of time. It had just gone seven p.m. when I finally arrived at Barhill Station, and so I sought food and lodgings for the night, both of which I found in the peaceful rooms of the Trout Inn, and made arrangements for the second leg of my journey on the morrow. January dawns can be bitterly cold in Ayrshire. That Tuesday morning in Barhill was no exception. I arranged, as per Mike's instructions, for a private hire vehicle to take me just south of the village of Bargrenon, to a place where the A714 crosses the River Cree. At the turnout of an unnamed road, just before the river, my rendezvous with the anonymous forest worker was set to take place. I arrived at the designated meeting place at a little before 8.30 a.m. It was still very cold, but I was grateful to be waiting there under clear skies. Like clockwork, a maroon estate, an old Citroen CX, I believe it was, emerged from the unnamed road at 8.30 on the dot, and pulled alongside me, with the engine still running. I hopped in, and was met by the glare of a nervous-looking twenty-something, my contact at the Forestry Commission, an individual I'll refer to hereon as Philippe. He turned the car around, and off we went along the unnamed road. We talked a little on the brief journey up that single-track lane, exchanging formalities in the main. The young forest worker said he'd been with the Commission for approximately six months, employed as a novice craftsperson, he indicated, and was responsible for numerous practical duties, including the planting of trees, pruning, and such like. In exchange for this introduction, I provided an overview of my work experience, focusing chiefly on my achievements in the fields of esoterica and the occult. Spurred on by my enthusiasm for such subjects, Philip proceeded to tell me that he had a great interest in cryptozoology, ever since sighting, at the tender age of eleven, the giant, hairy creature known as the Big Grey Man, Amphir Leith Moor, in Gaelic, on a childhood outing to the Cairngorms. He went on to say that that brief glimpse of something immense lurking amongst the distant trees inspired him to pursue a career in the great outdoors. A drive of a mile or so delivered us to another vehicle, a dark green Land Rover Defender, an off-road motor essential for excursions into the heart of the forest. It was during this part of the journey, a fifteen-minute ascent in the direction of Loch Trool, that Philippe and I discussed the purpose of our expedition that morning. The young craftsperson revealed that he'd discovered the first of the unusual objects during a trip to an area of the park he playfully referred to as the Belly, 
in reference to the phrase, the belly of the beast, highlighting the occasionally hostile nature of what was the remotest part of the forest. He had been coppicing the area, trimming trees to encourage growth, when he'd noticed the object standing upright in a nearby clearing. The thing was this, a large wooden door, frame and all, some seven feet high, overgrown with moss and weeds. On closer inspection, Philip noted that the door was locked. A rusty padlock secured by a heavy-duty hasp and staple prevented him from opening it. Naturally, he surmised that the door had once belonged to an old building of some description. But it was clear to his inquiring eyes that nothing man-made, aside from the door itself, had ever stood in that glade. Philippe queried the discovery with his supervisor later the same day, only to be told not to worry about it. Subsequent returns to the belly revealed further doors, six more to be precise, all of which differed from each other, some older, more weathered, others newer, sporting modern padlocks. And again, questions directed at his supervisor and other senior members of staff yielded the same glib responses. I asked the young worker if he had a theory as to the origin of the doors, but he simply shook his head, his eyes glued to the winding road ahead. We passed Loch Trool, and for a stretch continued along what was evidently a private access road, before eventually reaching a small parking area. There we exited the vehicle, and under a sky growing increasingly overcast, Philippe equipped me with a pair of walking boots, and off we tramped into the depths of the belly. I must state at this interval that the woods were beautiful, a feast for the senses, from the gentle crunch and scent of the needle-strewn forest floor beneath my feet, to the grand, towering pines that ascended, it seemed, towards infinity, and all about me the colours of life, those myriad shades of evergreen, accentuated by the charcoal-like blackness of the surrounding deep forest shadow. It made a poignant impression, but a fleeting one. After all, I was there on business. After a gruelling two-hour hike, we came upon the clearing Philippe had described. What a peculiar sight it was! <laughs> As the young worker had stated on the drive, it was indeed evident that the strange door hadn't at any time belonged to a larger structure. I studied it minutely. South-facing, multiple pieces of solid oak, iron frame heavily corroded, padlocks on both sides. Other than its mysterious presence in the clearing, there was nothing particularly unusual about the door itself, which begged the question, if it hadn't at one time been the entrance to a now-absent building, then what on earth was its purpose? I was about to ask Philippe to assist me in removing the padlocks, when it occurred to me that I hadn't quizzed him in any detail with regards to the other doors he'd discovered. "'Are all of the doors locked?' I asked, to which he responded, "'All but one.' He went on to explain that the unlocked door was in fact ajar, that the hasps had been torn away from what was a wooden frame in this case. Insisting that I ought to see it, we set off on what was, according to Philippe, an easy ten-minute hike from our present location. As we walked, I paid close attention to my surroundings. I was on the lookout for the irregular, the absence of wildlife, 
the presence of strange odours, but the forest was unyielding, its secrets obscured. The sky above remained overcast, though rain for the nonce seemed unlikely to fall. There was an uncomfortable humidity in the air, a result of the unusual warmth of the afternoon in what was a damp, dense forest. But I sensed nothing outré, nothing out of the ordinary, till I saw the second door, of course. The second door, another solid oak affair, with, as Philippe had described, an oak frame, stood atop a minor hillock, obscured by roughly a dozen conifers. Approaching it, I was immediately dazzled by a most unwelcome sensation. Imagine, if you will, a vast canvas, across which an artist has thrown every conceivable colour under the sun. The medium doesn't matter, just the suggestion of a thousand vibrant hues, bleeding into one another, merging in a seething mass of colour. Envision that wild canvas, then allow it to expand, growing ever larger and larger, till it consumes your field of vision. Then, quite suddenly, it rushes towards you, an iridescent cloud. It envelops you, penetrates your being. But as quickly as it comes over you, so does it vanish, leaving not a trace of itself behind. Such was the sensation that overwhelmed me, in less than an instant. What it was, and where it went, I was unable to contemplate at the time. My attention had turned to Philippe, whose hopeful eyes were directing me towards the mysterious door. Doors are powerful objects. The very sight of one can instill a variety of emotions—nostalgia, relief, pride. But the sight of that curious, displaced entryway deep in the belly of the park filled me with a very appropriate and specific emotion—fear. The door was indeed ajar. It looked as though it had been just so for a long time. Grass and weeds all but covered it, the wiry tendrils of the forest working to bring their repurposed counterpart back to the soil. Together with Philippe, the two of us managed to push the door a little further open, disturbing the earth and the worms in the process. I wasted no time in crossing the threshold. Perhaps the young craftsperson expected me to disappear, to vanish before his very eyes, but nothing of the sort occurred. I turned, and eyeballed Philippe humorously, watching him brace himself as I stepped back through. "'What about the newer doors?' I asked him. "'How new would you say they were?' "'A couple of years at most,' he answered. A theory was forming in my mind, the kind of hypothesis potentially dangerous to the young craftsperson. Philippe's supervisor, a chap we'll call Bob, had been reticent with regards to the young worker's questions, reticent in a manner that suggested that he too had been hushed on the subject of the mysterious doors. Bob's manager, we'll call her Sandra, had also been subjected to Philippe's inquiries, responding in much the same way, issuing the tired, don't worry about it directive. I looked at Philippe, his bright blue eyes filled with curiosity his quizzical brow furrowed with zeal. Could I deny this bright young spark the courtesy of my musings on the matter? After all, it was he who had brought the strange doors to my attention in the first place. And so I broke it down for the lad. Essentially, I posited that the doors were barriers, blockades erected with a single purpose, 
to prevent unwitting humans and animals alike from stumbling into whatever it was that had, at one time, existed in the space the structures now occupied. I further postulated that those intangible somethings were likely gateways or portals, capable of transporting those unfortunate enough to step through into—well, that's as far as I'd been willing to speculate at the time. Philippe's boyish face fell limp. The exhilaration that had formerly held his features aloft sank to the very bottom of his being, as he stood there, motionless, having listened to what I'm sure he perceived to be an utterly ridiculous and outlandish premise. But then I saw it—a wave of dawning realization, a weary acquiescence. He stood up straight, looked me in the eye, and nodded affirmatively, and with that nod he seemed to recall something of note. "'Might just explain those disappearances,' he said, in his thick, Glaswegian accent. And the young craftsperson went on to highlight numerous cases of missing persons in the area, going back decades and beyond—dog walkers, hikers, forest workers, lumberjacks, many a visitor to the forest of Galloway over the years, missing, presumed dead. He spoke of Victor Swift, an elderly vicar who watched his dog, a border collie by the name of Max, vanish before his eyes, near Craigencalley. There was the tale of Sarah Buchanan, a college student on a camping trip with friends near Loch Enoch, who was last seen heading into the shadows of the great pines to urinate, never to return. And Frank McCulloch and his wife, June, both of whom were never heard from again, following a hike through what Philippe continued to refer to as the belly of the forest. And then he mentioned a name I'd heard before—Lucy Fisher. Fisher, originally of Sheffield, South Yorkshire, had been an avid nature photographer, known for her striking landscapes and wildlife portraiture. On a warm day in the late summer of 2007, she'd set out on an excursion through Galloway Forest Park, armed with her trusty camera and her faithful sidekick, Knick-Knack the Pug. According to friends, who were awaiting her return in the nearby town of Newton-Stewart, Fisher was on a day-hike, and so, when she failed to come back that evening, and was seemingly unable to answer calls to her mobile phone, the authorities were contacted. Fisher was never found, but what stuck in my mind about the case was the fact that Knick-Knack, the pug, was found just two days later. A hiker, who had unwittingly strayed from a trail between the settlement of Craig Malloch and the Craig and Gillen estate in the north of the park, had happened upon what he described as an area of scrubland, at the centre of which stood a derelict building—a farmhouse, he called it. The man—I believe his name was Jones—approached the house with the intention of snooping about, as he put it, and lo and behold, Fisher's faithful sidekick, Knick-Knack, came bounding out of the front door, and into Jones's arms. Eager to return the dog to its rightful owner, Jones abandoned thoughts of entering the building, and retraced his steps to Craig Malloch, in order to seek assistance. Later, when he learned of Fisher's fate, he offered to assist interested parties in locating the house on the scrubland. But, unfortunately for all concerned, Mr. Jones suffered a fatal heart attack, before the search was scheduled to be conducted. Knick-Knack, who Jones had readily adopted, was left without a master once again.
Though Philippe had the gist of the Fisher case, he hadn't been aware of the discovery of Knick-Knack. He was particularly interested in the isolated house, as mentioned by Jones. I watched the cogs whirring, as with his mind's eye, the young craftsperson scanned the myriad maps and topographical data he'd studied during his relatively short time with the Commission. But daylight was beginning to wane, and so, with a two-hour hike ahead of us, we opted to return to civilization, in order to take stock of what we'd seen and discussed. How the forest changed as darkness fell. What earlier had been the gentle crunching of pine needles beneath my boots was now a roaring cacophony, with every ear-splitting snap serving as an invitation to the hidden denizens of the gathering gloom surrounding me. The scent that had been so enticing, fresh and sweet, was now stale and bitter, evocative of charred wood and mouldering tombs, and the colour, that universal evergreen, was all but completely absorbed by the ubiquitous blackness, void-like and cold. Even Philippe, the experienced forest worker that he was, seemed to be aware of the change. The belly of the forest wanted rid of us. Later that evening, Philippe and I snatched a quiet booth in a small pub on the outskirts of Newton Stewart, and, over a couple of pints of bitter, poured over an ordnance survey map of Galloway Forest Park. Our focus was on the sizable area between the settlement of Craig Mallock and the Craig and Gillen estate. The young forest worker outlined a number of hiking trails, only one of which appeared to match the route Knick-Knack's finder Jones said he had taken that day back in 2007. But in terms of the house on the scrubland, as described by the late hiker, the map had little to offer by way of evidence to support its existence. Satellite imagery, as viewed on a laptop Philippe brought along to the pub, revealed a couple of areas of interest, one in particular being a patch of scrubland by the southern end of Loch Finless, at the centre of which we observed a curious dark shape, quite possibly the elusive house we sought. Digging a little deeper, we brought up everything we could on the Lucy Fisher disappearance. I couldn't recall from memory where the photographer's friends had said she had entered the park that fateful day. It turned out that Fisher had visited Loch Trule the morning of her disappearance, mine and Philippe's starting point, after which an eyewitness claimed to have observed her heading north in the direction of Merrick, the park's highest mountain. From there, Philippe and I agreed that it was conceivable that Fisher may have continued from Merrick in a northeasterly direction towards Craig Mallock thereafter happening upon the scrubland, as described by Jones. But we had no evidence to support such guesswork, apart from the discovery of Knick-Knack several days later. Uncertain as to our next move, we decided to call it a night, a little after ten-thirty, the pair of us having secured accommodation at the pub. I slept poorly. I was unable to shake the afterimage of that unusual flash of colour I'd encountered by the second door in the belly. In retrospect, as I pondered the impression, I was all but certain that what I'd perceived was merely an echo, that I'd glimpsed a vision of something that had passed through the forest many years earlier, and this notion was supported by the fact that, after experiencing the unusual phenomenon, I'd stepped through that second entryway without effect, 
proving its dormancy. I peruse the archives of the hippocampus, searching for information stored away in stubborn cells, something to explain the familiarity I seem to be sensing about the whole thing. But I couldn't get to the bottom of it. It haunted me through till dawn, at which time I showered, dressed, and sought refreshment in the form of a full Scottish breakfast. Philippe joined me at the breakfast table, the dark rings around his eyes suggesting that he, too, had struggled to catch forty winks. Suitably stuffed following a hearty meal, we formulated a plan of action over numerous cups of coffee. I informed the young forest worker that, although I thought it likely that all seven doors were now dormant, there was perhaps a connection between Lucy Fisher's disappearance, and whatever the thing was that might conceivably have emerged from one of the doors many years earlier. With this in mind, we made plans to attempt Jones's trail that afternoon, hopeful that a detour in the direction of Loch Finless might prove fruitful. But prior to that, I wished to visit the establishment of an old friend of mine, a chap by the name of Gary Cook. Subscribers to Fortean Weekly will be familiar with Cook's books in Wigtown. His collection of pulp fiction is second to none, not to mention his bi-monthly publication, Mysteries of the Mind. Wigtown, known as Scotland's national book town, is heaven on earth for an antiquated soul such as me. One can't help but feel consumed by the magic of it all. Books are, after all, magical objects, housing forbidden thoughts, secret worlds, and the mysteries of the universe. But I digress. Philippe dropped me off at Cook's books just before nine a.m. I was waiting by the door when the shutters came up. I met with Gary, did a little catching up, then got down to the business at hand. I spoke at length on several subjects, the enigmatic doors in the forest, my young acquaintance at the Forestry Commission, and the disappearance of Lucy Fisher. Gary's eyes narrowed to slits as he listened. It was plain he had information for me. It was just a case of prying it out of him somehow. And so I continued, informing him of mine and Philippe's intention to follow in the footsteps of the late hiker, Jones. But still, old Gary refused to yield. Having exhausted almost all avenues, I brought up my experience by the second door in the forest. At the mention of that wild flash of colour that moved through me, Gary's eyes widened. He looked at the floor sheepishly. A few moments elapsed. Then Gary let out a reluctant sigh, and proceeded to talk. And boy, did he talk! I'll recount what he said, as best I can. According to Gary, the word on the street, or the rumour in the air, as he put it, was that an unnamed organisation of some description was responsible for the doors in the forest of Galloway. Confirming my suspicions, he went on to state that this organisation had been formed centuries earlier, following a number of bizarre disappearances in several locations across the globe, and, much to my horror, a number of extraordinary arrivals. Not only was it a fact that men, women, and children had vanished as a result of stumbling into these mysterious portals, but it was also a fact that things from the other side of the portals had stumbled through into our world. As to where these portals were said to lead, 
and whether or not those crossing the thresholds could ever return, the rumour mill had been unable to provide a reasonable answer. But that wasn't all Gary had to say on the subject. Sweeping a seemingly random pile of papers aside on a desk in his office, an old book was revealed. Apparently, it was a partial copy of the mysterious book Nun, said to have been authored by the American paranormal investigator David Fisk, following his travels throughout Transcaucasia in the 1950s. Subscribers to Fortean Weekly will be well acquainted with what we know about the book, I myself having written on the subject many times. But you'll also be aware that other than the dozen or so second-hand accounts conveyed to me, I've never before been fortunate enough to lay my hands on an actual copy of the book. As far as Gary's copy was concerned, he claimed to have been gifted it by a contact in the Lake District. He hadn't much to say about this shadowy figure, aside from the fact that the lady in question was a collector of rare books, with a keen interest in the occult, a lady after my own heart, I might add. In any case, I was thrilled to behold a copy of none, regardless of its incompleteness. For a couple of seconds, Gary leafed through the book, in quest of something specific. Finding it, he passed the tome to me. I feel it's important to note at this stage that none is a handwritten book, and though the version in my hands was evidently a reproduction, I couldn't help but marvel at Fisk's haphazard scroll. Full of excitement, like a winner at the races, I read from a passage headed, The Custodians. The passage spoke at length regarding the secret organization Gary had mentioned, referencing a number of locations throughout the United States in which the organization had installed doors akin to those I'd witnessed in the Forest of Galloway. According to the text, this organization, dubbed the Custodians, was continually monitoring locations throughout the world, several of which at any one time might be host to what were described as active elements. Locations indicated were Cherry Creek, Nevada, USA, Berchtesgaden, Germany, next to which, roughly scribbled, was the word Untersberg, which, according to my research, is a massive in the Berchtesgaden Alps, Penrinda Dreyth, North Wales, and Bolton, England, next to which, underlined in the margin, was the name of a village on the outskirts of the town, Felmont. But what really caught my interest was a segment describing beings or entities Fisk referred to as the Colours of Carlo. The section read as follows. We mustn't ignore what the Hyperboreans called the Colours of Carlo. During the erection of a door in the mountains of the Nevada desert, a custodian came face to face with an iridescent mass that spontaneously appeared within the boundary of the doorframe. The mass was incorporeal, the man said, passing through him and evaporating when he turned to pursue it. Later, at the same location, another custodian involved in the finishing of the door claimed to have been fleetingly enveloped by what she could only describe as an inexplicable flash of colour. An after-effect of the first custodian's experience, or had other colours followed in its tracks? Regardless, one must be mindful of what the Hyperboreans wrote on the subject of these inexplicable beings. They come to feed. Fisk goes on to explain the futility of the doors, stating that, though they're clearly effective in keeping people and animals out, 
they're not so effective in keeping the occupants of the other side in. Digesting the strangeness to which I'd been exposed, I looked up at Gary, whose round face was a mask of uncertainty. "'What do you make of it?' he asked. "'Haven't a clue,' I responded. "'Still a little distance away, as far as my attention was concerned.' We talked at length on the subject of rare books, volumes teeming with cryptic references to phenomena both weird and wonderful. Jericho's Sorcerella came up, the famous book of spells often found in the midst of would-be wizards, the fabled Necronomicon, within the forbidden pages of which, according to notes found amongst the papers of Derek Myers, a rare book collector who allegedly acquired fragments of the John Dee translation, were a number of references to locations throughout the world wherein curious magnetic anomalies were at one time present, and the Book of Ibon, that forgotten volume of ancient Hyperborea, in what little remains of which, according to Gary's copy of none, mention is made of those intangible creatures said to have preyed upon Hyperborean spiritualists in the form of bright, flashing colours, the aforementioned colours of Carlo. The whole thing had me bristling with a strange mixture of excitement and alarm. What on earth was it that I was getting myself into? As to the true nature of the doors, the custodians, the colours, Gary and I could only speculate. But either way, it was very fortunate that I decided to pay Cook's books a visit that morning, as my old friend took it upon himself to share with me a certain something— that would later ensure the success of mine and Philippe's endeavours in the great forest. The conversation had added significant flesh to the bones of my working theory, and so I left Gary in the reliable company of his leather-bound acquaintances, and sought my younger accomplice over at Rigby's coffee-shop, next door but two. Over a cup of coffee and a cigarette by the door, I brought Philippe up to speed. It was my belief— that when Lucy Fisher and her beloved pug, Knick-Knack, took to the hills that day, back in the summer of two thousand and seven, that it wasn't a portal she stumbled upon, but rather that peculiar patch of scrubland host to the old house, as later described by the late hiker, Jones. And, in happening upon that isolated spot, Fisher and her dog crossed paths with another wanderer, an entity that had been transported to the forest years before— and had taken up a residence in the very property into which the two of them had blundered. Could it be that the entity in question simply stumbled into the forest of Galloway, just as the countless numbers of unwitting men and women had stumbled into similar invisible gateways here on earth? Or was it more likely, as per the tales of the colours of Carlo, as described by the ancient Hyperboreans, that the entity had intentionally crossed that invisible border, in order to feast upon our senses? The answer to that question lay in that isolated farmhouse off the beaten track, in the northern reaches of the great forest. Philip, though wary and understandably sceptical, agreed that the only course of action was to proceed with the plan, to seek out the mysterious house, and to deal with whatever we might encounter there within its crumbling walls, upon our arrival. We returned to Philippe's Land Rover, and readied ourselves for the forty-mile drive from Wigtown to Craig Mallock, packing food, water, and a change of clothing. 
In addition to these essentials, I had, tucked away in an inside pocket, my journal. Occasional Fortean weekly readers might be unaware that my journal doubles as a sort of survival guide, a book of helpful hints and tricks for the discerning paranormal investigator out in the field. Page 34, thanks to my old friend Gary, was going to be especially useful— if Philippe and I were to encounter the likes of which only the ancient Hyperboreans had ever dared speak of. This I discussed with the young forest worker in detail, all the while attempting to soothe his nerves. The grey skies that had haunted us on our previous visit to the park were naught but a distant memory that Wednesday afternoon. The sky above was clear, a light sapphire hovering above an emerald landscape. We reached Craig Malloch a little after twelve-thirty p.m. Exiting the vehicle, we once again donned walking boots, and set about the task of locating Jones's elusive house. Parked on the outskirts of the settlement, we took a moment to gaze out across the still waters of Loch Doon, Philippine the scenery, myself wondering what that scenery might say, if it could only speak. Locating the desired trailhead, we took off in the direction of a distant clump of trees, the very route Jones claimed to have traversed all those years earlier. The weather remained calm and clement, and under any other circumstances, the trek into the park that day would have been an absolute joy. But beyond it all, the clear skies and the teeming canopies, the birdsong and the creaking trees, I sensed that we were treading on dangerous ground— moving in upon the territory of something that was assuredly unfriendly. Philippe consulted the ordnance survey map he carried frequently, steering us away from the main hiking trail in a northwesterly direction, towards Loch Finless. We looked for evidence of activity along the way—footprints, personal effects—but it was clear, at least to the young craftsperson, that the only creatures regularly traversing the region we descended into were members of the local wildlife population. We must have been hiking for a good hour, before Philippe stopped in his tracks, motioning towards a break in the trees up ahead. I followed his gaze, and could just about make out what appeared to be a clearing on the horizon. Cautiously, we proceeded, until it was undeniable that the area up ahead was in fact the scrubland of which Jones had described— back in 2007. Having trekked through the dense swath of woodland surrounding it with Philippe, it was now much easier for me to understand how the search parties assigned to the missing Lucy Fisher had been unable to locate the remote clearing. Emerging from the tree-line, I was initially taken by the size of the expanse. It was much smaller than I'd anticipated, approximately equal to an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and there, at its centre, South-facing stood the old house, just as Jones had described it. It was a two-story building covered in flaking rough cast, at the top of which a partially collapsed chimney surmounting a slate roof pointed into the clear blue sky like an arrow. Fragments of glass remained in three of the four windows, gawping like hollow eyes. The entrance to the house was by means of a dark wooden door, hanging by a thread to its frame. The building was certainly unwelcoming, 
and I imagine that Jones was more than a little relieved that he'd been given an excuse not to enter, when the pug, Knick-Knack, came bounding out of it. Other than the occasional chirp of a bird, and the rustle of a squirrel in one of the overlooking pines, the scene was still and silent. As Philippe gazed at the ruined building, a mask of reluctance fell across his face, which was just as well as I meant to enter the house alone. This I relayed to my young accomplice, to which he responded with a slow and considerate nod of his head. I then proceeded to give him a series of instructions to follow, in the event that anything untoward occur. Untoward? he queried. In response, I lit a cigarette, and slowly advanced towards the elderly edifice. Old houses are curious. Abandoned houses even more so. They take on the appearance of orphan children, gazing hopefully in the direction of those willing to approach, ready to reveal their most hidden secrets in exchange for the attention they've craved for untold ages. The house on the scrubland was no different. Those windows like mournful eyes, the facade streaked with neglect, the gaping mouth of the threshold, hollow and humble. Reaching the doorway, I extinguished my cigarette, and turned to survey my counterpart, standing at the edge of the forest. He signalled weakly in my direction, a poor attempt at an encouraging salute. I returned the gesture with aplomb, before turning to meet the gloom that awaited me. I stepped inside. I felt it, straight away. The presence of something alien. Inhaling deeply, I took a good long look at my immediate surroundings. The remains of a staircase greeted me, only the banister rail of which reminded one of its former existence. To my right, a boarded-up door prevented access to the eastern rooms of the ground floor. To my immediate left, however, an empty space opened out into further gloom. Cautiously entering this area, I observed decaying items of furniture in the centre of the room, illuminated by a single ray of light permitted entry through a gap in the stiff curtains pulled across the large window to the south. Guided by this solitary beam, I followed it to where it appeared to highlight a mouldy door on the room's north wall. Approaching the door, I saw that something had been etched into the rotten wood, a phrase, clearly visible, at the centre of the beam of light. It read as follows, Beware the path less travelled. On closer inspection, I observed numerous scratches on the door below the etching, quite possibly the result of a small dog's attempts to gain access to the room. Knick-knack's claw marks, perhaps? What, I wondered, was on the other side of that door? The sound of footsteps to my rear had me turning on my heel. Silhouetted by the beam of light was my young companion, Philippe. "'Find anything?' he whispered. I was about to chastise him, when, quite suddenly, there sounded a most disquieting din on the other side of the mouldy door. It was the sound of liquid, something viscous, sloshing about, like the noise one might expect to hear when attempting to expel the curdled remnants of sour milk from the confines of a plastic carton. And akin to sour milk, there rose a smell, a foul fetter, the unmistakable stench of decomposition. 
Philippe wretched where he stood, taking several steps backwards in the process. Undeterred, I turned once again to face the door. Slosh, gurgle, bubble. Something was growing behind that mouldy door, expanding, and the stench intensified, forcing me to cover my nose with a handkerchief. With my other hand, I fished out my journal, and there, in the limited light of that lone beam, I flicked through it with my thumb, in quest of page thirty-four. Philippe remained several feet to my rear, no doubt regretting his decision to join me in the awful, festering shadows of that house. Locating that which I sought, I lowered the handkerchief, deciding that the stench, no matter how intense, wasn't so bad that I'd be prepared to face its source with one arm. I approached the door in the slowly shifting spotlight with all the conviction I could muster, and, with great care, clutched the handle and pulled it open. The sight beyond was indescribable though I'll do my best to do it justice. The room itself was of no concern. As a matter of fact, I can hardly recall it. The only thing that caught and held my attention was the sphere, hovering in mid-air, some three to four feet in diameter, a glowing, iridescent ball of effervescing liquid threatened to rob me of my sanity. It throbbed and pulsated, emitting the foulest smell— the intensity of which had me heaving. This involuntary reaction to the stench was probably the very thing that saved me, as, in doubling over as I did, I was reminded of the fact that I was clutching my journal, open to page thirty-four. But as I sought to process that which was written in the book, my peripheral vision was dazzled by a firework display of colour, the likes of which only the Hyperboreans, in all of recorded history— had ever before attempted to describe. I heard a thud behind me. The result of what I later discovered was Philippe's unscheduled collapse. But I held my nerve, and, achieving some semblance of focus, I resisted the urge to glance at the thing again, and read from my journal in a loud, clear voice, read as though my life depended on it, which, of course, it absolutely did. The verse through which I emptied my lungs was a phonetic transcription of a revocation found in the Sorcerella, that, according to my old friend Gary Cook, had been sourced by the wizard Jericho from an alleged book of Ibon fragment. I daren't quote that forbidden verse here. To do so out of context would only provoke that which it was employed to dispel. I barked those four lines over and over again, like a priest conducting an exorcism my eyes averted to the iridescent colour, its pulsing, gelatinous core, an insult to all which is sane and holy. Beads of sweat peppered my wrinkled brow, as an intensifying humidity sought to drain me of moisture, to bleed me dry before that monstrous abomination, which, I saw out of the corner of my eye, was presently glowing a dark, furious red. And then, quite suddenly— the dreadful sphere began to expand rapidly, filling the entirety of the room in which it pulsated. My gaze was drawn to it, but I persisted with the revocation. Next, it contracted, just as swiftly, reducing to the size of a water droplet, at which stage it 
promptly vanished into thin air. Sensing deception, I rushed outside, scanning the trees and the scrubland for any sign of the otherworldly colour. Seeing nothing, I glanced towards the heavens, and there, above me, in every direction, a vivid iridescence filled the sky, steadily dissipating, like the recession of clouds observed in a time-lapse video. The GATT revocation, as provided by Gary Cook, had forced the colour into the ether, where it would eventually dissolve, never to prey upon those lost in Galloway Forest Park again. I watched the last of the colour fade from the afternoon sky, before returning to the confines of the purged house. My first port of call was the horizontal form of the young craftsperson. He opened glazed eyes to me, as I crouched beside him. "'What happened?' he mumbled, in response to which I gestured in the direction of the empty room at the back of the house. Leaving Philippe to come to his senses, I inspected the cleansed room thoroughly. Within, I found the remains of local fauna, matted hair and broken bones, all piled together in a corner. A sticky residue coated the remains, quite possibly a form of bile or gastric acid, and a curiously familiar bone fragment suggested the presence of human remains amongst the detritus, but the task of identifying it as such wasn't mine. A weary-looking Philippe joined me, astonished, he said, to have woken at all, let alone to discover that the thing that had forced him into unconsciousness in the first place was nowhere to be seen, or smelled. We left the house shortly afterwards, returning in the direction of Philippe's Land Rover. Again, the woods had changed, but whereas I'd sensed something foreboding the previous day, I felt that the forest was somehow cognizant of what had been driven from the house in its midst. It was rejuvenated. My young companion felt it too. But I caught fleeting glimpses of the sky through the canopy overhead, a sky that had unwittingly accepted the forest's burden. Out there, somewhere else, perhaps at that very moment crossing uncharted thresholds, strange life-forms such as the colours of Carlo might be settling themselves into the darkest and most hidden corners of the world, waiting for those unfortunate enough to encounter them. My mind was filled with thoughts such as these, as Philippe and I reached the Land Rover, and returned to Newton Stewart. It simply remained to report the discovery of the bones in the deserted house, a task which Philippe and I were obliged to perform together, in spite of the young forest worker's wish to remain anonymous in all this. Later, in conversation with Philippe over the telephone, I learned that forensic anthropologists assigned to the case counted the remains of four individuals amongst the bones recovered from that accursed place, all of whom were identified as persons reported missing. One of the skeletons was that of the aforementioned Lucy Fisher. And so, what began as a case involving a number of unusual objects in the forest, ended with the discovery of four missing persons, and the banishment of an alien entity, the likes of which, if the words of the ancient Hyperboreans are anything to go by, have been frequenting the planet Earth for eons. But several questions remain unanswered. Where did that strange creature come from? And, most importantly, had the GATT revocation truly eliminated it 
my advice to you, reader, is to be wary when you're out and about in the great outdoors. Exercise vigilance in the presence of Mother Nature, and, if you're unfortunate enough to encounter a padlocked door in the deep woods, just keep on walking. Don't worry about it. Afterward. Well, that's your lot. I doubt they'll print the whole thing, but it'll certainly give Mike something to work with. I find myself questioning what I saw in the end. Philippe was unable to put what he saw into words. He likened the vision to that one might expect to see when peering into a kaleidoscope. And in the end, it was the smell that had knocked him out. Or so he said. But my recollections are vivid, from that first brief flash by the door on the hillock, to that dreadful encounter with the colour in the old house. And then there's that etching in the door, so curiously illuminated by that beam of light. Beware the path less travelled. I was reluctant to mention in the article that I was familiar with the verse in which that phrase appears. Some call it the path. In full, it reads as follows. It's a dusty old thing, that memory, littered with weeds unseen, over the hills, under the trees, there on the edge of a dream. Stray too far, and you'll miss it, the thought it won't ever occur, to stray into wilds without reason, magnificent the end of despair. Beyond the bridges of slumber, no couth and her barnacled throne, fade into blackness and stroll by the light close to the end of the line. And when awake once again by the starlight, look to the eye of the storm, but beware the path less travelled, for you might just forget who you are. Curious. It's sometimes referred to as Murphy's Method, attributed to Jason Murphy, a figure whose name conjures visions of the four steps, a world beyond this one, and a strange black box, a man often whispered about in certain circles. But what's the connection? I'm at a loss to explain the origin of that etching there in the presence of that thing. Which brings me back to the questions I asked in the foreword. Who are the custodians? Where might they be found? Might an active element set me on the right path? Like I said, I need help. By my reckoning, there's only one man capable of helping me answer these questions— my old friend in Manchester's northern quarter, the keeper of the private collection. Perhaps I'll pay him a visit. Anyway, enough of this. I have an article to submit. Peter Van Melsen, Rosedale, February 2018